Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Earl and I actually met in uh, junior high, and we became friends, and he asked me out in grade seven, but I wasn't allowed to date. (laughs) So again, in grade 10, uh, he asked me out again, and we went to the movie Back to the Future, the first one. Earl and I were both uh, 16, 16 years old. This is Janice. My name is Janice Hoy. Janice grew up in Curtis, Ontario. It was 1985, and Earl was her first love. Earl was a a character, and he was sort of like a bad boy. (laughs) And he had been dating, and he was allowed to do a lot more than I was. I had a curfew, and and he laughed at me. I think I had to be home by 11 o'clock. And after that first date... He dropped me off in the driveway and asked me if I would go out again on Friday. And he gave me a kiss. And that was the beginning of our relationship. A relationship that would end up changing the course of more than one life. Earl and I were 17. We were in grade 12. And uh, I became pregnant. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. It was 1987, and there was still a lot of stigma surrounding pregnancies out of wedlock. Especially, of course, for the woman. Which was only made worse if she was a teenager. Options were limited. Abortion wasn't legal in Canada, and it wouldn't be for another year. Even then, Janice was religious, and abortion didn't fit for her. Janice kept her pregnancy to herself. The only people who knew were Earl and Janice's best friend, Deanna. This was my dirty secret. It was something that I was embarrassed or ashamed of, and I didn't want anyone to know. And I didn't want anyone to think differently of me. Janice was able to keep that secret and make it through to the end of her school year without anyone knowing. She even went to prom. I wore a long pink dress, and uh, Earl had a white tuxedo on, and he had pink uh, bow tie and a pink cummerbund. We had beautiful pictures in my mom and dad's backyard. But the next day, she sat her parents down and told them the truth. They were very, very upset. My mom cried a little bit with me. She hurt for me because she knew I had a a tough year ahead of me. She wanted me to go to school, and they knew that I always had wanted to be a nurse. And they worried that I wouldn't finish school and that Earl and I would struggle if we stayed together. But Janice wasn't thinking about school or her future as a nurse. She was wondering if she would be able to raise a child and give it everything it needed. Or if she should give it up for adoption. Ultimately, she and Earl agreed it would be Janice's decision. But what she couldn't know is how that decision would end up playing out 32 years later. All right, back to 1987. By the time commencement came around, Janice still had not decided what she was going to do, but she knew she could not be with her friends that night. Janice will take it from here. Missing commencement was horrible. I cried a lot. I remember crying myself to sleep while Deanna and them were picking out their dresses, but I knew I couldn't go because I was starting to show a little bit. My pants were getting tight and my tops were getting tight and my breasts were getting larger and I couldn't walk across the stage and get my graduation diploma. I was too embarrassed. I was... And I didn't want anybody to find out. 
So I think that was the moment it hit home. And Earl, I was hoping he wouldn't go and he would stay with me, but he wanted to go because he couldn't miss out on anything. And it just was one of those things that I knew we weren't ready. He he wasn't ready to settle down and give up things. On the night of commencement, I met with the Children's Aid Society. The gentleman came out to talk to me at my sister's house. Older gentleman, not very warm. He was very to the point, very businesslike. He went through the rules and the regulations and he handed me a whole bunch of profiles of parents who were looking for children. He said I could pick. I think that was probably the worst night throughout everything. That was my worst night. I cried all night. The gentleman from Children's Aid called me. It was probably the end of October, maybe the beginning of November. And he said, profile number three, the parents had had an adoption, an adopted child, and the adoption fell through. He wanted me to know that. They were heartbroken. You know, 21 days, you have to change your mind. And uh, this mother changed her mind in the 21 days. So this family had lost the baby. And for me, that was just heart-wrenching because I can't imagine giving up a child, let alone deciding later to pull him back. So... I had it in my mind that once I made my decision, it was going to be final. So I really, really wanted to think about it. But this family, this profile number three, I pulled out. I decided that they deserved this baby if I was going to give it up. I just felt that if they got my baby and they got to keep him or her, that they would love them to death. I felt like... They would love the baby the way I wanted the baby to be loved. Getting closer to my due date and uh, this one night, it was actually December 12th, um, everybody had some Christmas party planned for work or my mom and dad were going to the fiddle club and so I was going to be alone that night. So my mom talked to Earl early on in the week and said, are you going to be around? Janice is due and and we want to make sure that somebody's there in case she needs anything. And he said, yes, he'd absolutely be around. Earl never came. And he never came and never came. And there was a knock on the door about 930. It was my brother's best friend and his wife. I was mortified. I was due. I was gonna have a baby that week and no one had saw me and I'd managed to hide out from the world I thought that my world was gonna fall apart probably about 15 minutes after that I went into labor there was no one I could call we didn't have cell phones at that point in time my brother Ken called about 11 o'clock and uh, he drove me to my sister's and we went right to Ajax Pickering Hospital my sister stayed with me through the whole labor, and I had the baby, the baby boy, at 2.30 in the morning. He was beautiful. He was 7 pounds, 13 ounces. He was really long, had really long fingers and toes, reddish dark hair, chubby cheeks, and he was perfect. And I talked to him just like I had the whole pregnancy. I told the nurses I didn't want to stay. I wanted to go home. And I went to my room and I cried. And I cried. I did the pros and cons just like they all told me to do. And I went back for every feeding. I'd go several times a day. And every time I was there, I'd sit with them and I'd talk to them. 
I felt like if he could just know how I was feeling, he'd understand. Earl didn't show up when he needed to. Earl came on the Sunday and he held the baby. And my friend Deanna came on Sunday and she held the baby. And we all talked about how we could raise him. We named him. Earl named him. His name was going to be Derek James Earl Strong. They took me home. On the way home, I told Deanna and Earl that I didn't want them to come over anymore. I didn't want them to visit the baby, that I was going to make my decision. And uh, I needed time. I knew, I knew. I left that day, and I knew I didn't want him to stay in the hospital and and be alone. It was getting close to Christmas, and he deserved to be loved. And, and I just knew Earl and I weren't ready. I knew that Earl wasn't ready, and I knew that things wouldn't change, and it wouldn't be the way I wanted it to be. Not for that baby. He deserved more. I wouldn't have been able to give him what he needed. And I wouldn't have been able to do it alone. My sister took me in on Tuesday evening. I wanted, I wanted to see him. And I wanted to say goodbye to him. And I wanted to explain to him why I was doing it. And uh, I went in and I fed him. And I talked to him. I told him that I was just a kid myself and that I was trying to get my life together and I just told him that I wanted him to grow up in a family like mine that was together and that supported each other. I told him that I was sorry and that I loved him and he was born out of love. I told him that I was trying to make the right decisions and that I did the best I could and I could have done things easier and not went through all that pain, but he was worth it. He was worth going through it. And if I had to do it again, I'd do it again. Doesn't matter what I missed, he was worth it. And I knew he was going to make that family so happy. I told the baby that if he ever wanted to find me I wasn't going anywhere I wouldn't change my name I'd be there if he wanted to find me and I hoped that one day he would want to find me I struggled but I knew that I was making the right decision so we went to the lawyer's office in Oshawa and uh we named the baby, we did the birth certificate, we signed all the paperwork. The lawyer explained to us about the 21 days and that we were giving up our rights and we had 21 days to change our mind and I told him that we had decided. We left the lawyer's office and I went back to my sister's and I spent seven days in the room crying, trying to get my stuff together so that I could, you know, go on. Finally, one day I got up and I started applying for jobs and I got a job and I got another job. I was working two jobs and I was staying busy and I counted down the days. Christmas came and went and I had promised them that I would never look back. You know, Earl went on like nothing had happened. Earl didn't want to talk about things, um, so it made it really hard for me. For years, I I guess I just kept busy and kept going. I, I got jobs and more jobs and started school and went back to school. But the baby was always in my mind. 
it was very hard on our relationship, Earl and I, and uh, we struggled with it. We uh, stayed together. We managed to stay together throughout college. He uh, he changed a lot. He got onto the fire department, and we both worked very, very hard. Earl was a fireman, and I was a registered nurse. We moved into the house when we were 23. We got married August 24th, 1996, and we started having children in um, February 1998. We had our first born, second born, but our first born as married couple, Blake. Three years later, we had Brock, and three years later, we had Brody. We never talked to the boys about the baby we had in high school. I guess you always want them to think that you're perfect and that you didn't do anything wrong and you had the morals that you want them to have. And, you know, I I don't know why we didn't tell them, but we talked about it and we decided that when the boys were older, we thought when our youngest was 16, we would tell them about our baby and what had happened. We figured by then they'd all be old enough to understand I had tough times every December. I uh, I struggled from the beginning of the month until his birthday. And Earl, like I said, didn't want to talk about it and unless I'd bring it up. And then he'd find me in the room and I'd be crying and he'd worry. But I'd get through it. And he knew that a part of my heart was missing. and uh, And he knew that I hoped one day it would be filled. So life went on, and and the laws had changed with the adoption, and everything was different with how the child could find you and look for you and how you could look for them, and you had to give permission. And I actually applied and sent my form in, and um, Earl didn't know that. It was something I needed to do because I wanted the baby to know that I was always, I was always there and I I wanted him to be able to find me. It was the beginning of January 2018. Earl and I were at a stage in our lives where our mortgage was paid for. We were in a good spot financially. And we were looking for um, cottages. January the 20th, our agent said to us, there's a cottage coming up and it's three over from your friend's house. And Earl's like, we have to go see it. And we fell in love with it. Earl decided that he needed to look at the roof one more time before it got too dark. Our friend said, let's go. Let's go. We'll go look at it right now. And I said, are you guys driving over? Because we'll go with you. And uh, they said, no, you guys stay here. Have a drink. We're going to take the snowmobiles. And I said, you know, be careful and be quick. Earl gave me a kiss. And I uh, sat back down on the couch with Robin. And we uh, had a drink. And we were talking. And we saw the snowmobiles go to the right of us. And then we saw the snowmobiles go back to the left of us. So they face on to the lake. 30 minutes went by and I was starting to get a not good feeling in my stomach. And uh, the phone rang. Robin answered it. And I was walking back across the room. And when the phone rang and she said hello, I dropped my glass of wine and I knew right then something was wrong. It was the paramedics calling. They told Robin that they had just pulled her husband out of the lake, that he was on a snowmobile and it had went through open water. Robin was really, really upset. 
and she got off the phone and, and she said Brian went through the ice and Earl saved him and they're on their way to Lindsay Hospital and I said did they say Earl's okay and she said well Earl saved him and I said did they say Earl's name I, I, I think I knew in my heart when I dropped my glass of wine that Earl was gone I just felt, felt it. This is CBC News. A snowmobile rider is missing and another is in hospital. That's according to the OPP. The two people fell through the ice on Sturgeon Lake. That's northwest of Peterborough. That happened last night. And we waited all day. They found his body around four o'clock in the afternoon. After Earl died, I didn't know how to go on. I was I was at the bottom, and I was struggling to stay afloat. The whole family struggled. I think we were all in shock, and Earl was the center. I was lost. I was in a really bad place for a long time, so were the kids. I don't know how we got through the first year. It's a blur. I was seeing a counselor, and the counselor said to me that I, I had to confront and face these two traumas that I have dealt with in my life, and that was the only way I was going to start healing. It was early November in 2019. I went on the uh, internet and I came across an interview and this woman, she was reuniting birth mothers and their adopted children. The next day, I sent an uh, explanation to the adoption consultant about my story. I was hoping that she would help me find my baby. She uh, sent me back a response. And in the letter back, she said what documents I needed to complete and how to fill out the forms. December the 11th, 2019, I start going through the mail and lo and behold, I found my birth son's birth certificate. I have it right here. This is the first time I knew my son's name, where it was surname Hoy, it now says Ferguson, and forename's baby boy is Kevin Thomas Lee. This was the first time in 32 years that I knew my son's name. I got a text message from the adoption consultant at five o'clock. And she said, I just gotten off the phone with your birth son. He was ready and willing to be in contact with me. I sent him a text, it said something like, Hi, I'm Janice, I'm your birth mother. <laughs> I've been waiting my your whole life to hear from you and I hope you'll text me back. AC here. Coming up, Janice gets her answer. We'll be right back. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. You... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives. 
Available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I sent him a text, I sent him an email, and I sent him a, and I sent him a message. I was at work. It was just after 11 a.m., uh, right before lunch, where I received a message from a Janice Hoy introducing herself as my biological mother. I had been waiting for this message my, uh, my whole life. This is, the, this is my biological mother. It's where I came from. So, so many questions go through my head. Who are you? Where are you from? What's our background? Do I have siblings? So many questions. He texted me and we started going back and forth and poor him because my texts were two pages long every text because I didn't know if, you know, he'd change his mind or he'd decide not to. And I wanted him to know as much as he possibly could. I wanted him to know his history and I wanted him to know that he had 300% biological brothers and that Earl and I had stayed together and I wanted him to know that he was always loved and always thought about. He said that it happened at the right time. He said he wasn't open to it before and that he really wanted to get to know me better. He told me that he he had a great life and he had great parents and he had great brothers and he told me about his family. So we did that for the one day. When I got home that evening, uh, we sat around the dinner table at home and I told the whole family that I was going to be meeting my biological mother for the first time. Turned out that he only lived his whole life 15 minutes away from me. It was surreal that he was that close. They were located in the neighboring town to the place where I grew up my entire life. That was certainly a bit of a shock. There was a very strong chance somewhere, somehow, I had likely passed them on a street corner or we had played hockey in the same arena. Had he been at a hockey rink when I was there? Had he been to Bowmanville Emerge? Had had I treated him or his brothers? You know, I'd worked there for 13 years in the emergency department. So many things were running through my mind. I went to sleep December the 10th with three brothers and one family. And I woke up the next day on December the 11th, and I had six brothers and two families. I, I doubled it in, in an evening, so that, that was a, a, a beautiful day. Kevin's birthday, his 32nd birthday, was on December 13th. And I actually got to wish him a happy birthday. We were both excited and intrigued and we wanted to meet face to face. We decided that we were going to go for dinner together at uh, a local restaurant uh, in the town that I live and uh, we decided to plan it for uh, the next evening. I hadn't told my other children yet that I'd found them and I hadn't, they didn't even know about them. My name is Blake Strong. I am 23 years old. Janice is my mother, and Kevin is my older brother. My mom brought us upstairs and sat us down, and I thought my mind was racing like we did something wrong. Somebody had died. On the Sunday, we got home from lunch, and I told my boys about Earl and I having a baby in high school. Brock, my middle guy, was really, really excited. He felt really, really good and positive about it right away. I could see him being excited and wanting to hear more. And Brody, he was uh, he was confused. He kept saying, I don't understand, Mom. I don't know what you're saying. And 
I don't get it. And he just kept repeating that. And Blake, my oldest, didn't want to hear the conversation. I ran to my room and I slammed the door. My mind was just like, it was just shocked. It was, I had never felt that rage and that anger just come over me so suddenly, so instantly. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to look at anybody. I didn't want it to be true. I was just really, really angry. I didn't believe it was my dad's kid. I thought my mom had hid this from my dad his whole life. And that just made me so angry. It made me so upset. I had just recently lost my dad. So it felt like she had betrayed him. I remember right away saying, like, this isn't true. Like, where is this coming from? Like, why haven't you told anybody? I was really angry that they just left the kid out there and, like, didn't check up on him all those years. Like, didn't make sure he was okay. Didn't know if he was in a loving family. I just remember, like, quizzing my mom. She was crying and trying to explain it. He got up. He didn't want anything to do with me or to talk to me. I honestly sat in the dark for two, three hours, no cell phone, nothing, and just sat in the dark, thought about what my dad would think. I was confused. I was angry. I didn't understand how something like this could happen. Brock and Brody were very excited, and they told me that they wanted to come and meet their brother the next night. They had planned to go for a dinner. I said, not a chance. Was I going? Like, I, I didn't think he was a part of my family. I didn't think... Like, honestly, I didn't think it was worth my time. I was just so angry. I didn't want to see my mother. I didn't want to see Kevin. I didn't want to see anybody. I wanted nothing to do with him. I didn't want him any part of my life. I didn't even want to meet him. I didn't want to give him the time of day. We went, and uh, we were meeting Kevin at the uh, Snug in Newcastle. I didn't dress up for the occasion at all. Uh, I wanted them to, to know exactly what they were getting into uh, when they met me. I snuck into the restaurant 15 minutes early and I can very specifically remember watching the window while I was sitting at the table. I had strategically snuck myself into a spot that I could look outside uh, and, and sort of catch them on the way by so I could take that one last deep breath. That bright red door slowly opened the boys walked in and and he hugged Brock and Brody and then me. Uh, Janice was crying. The first time I saw him, I knew immediately. I knew I loved him and I, I knew right away he was a part of me and we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked and it was amazing. I couldn't take my eyes off of them. I found myself looking at physical tendencies that we all shared. Found myself checking out the brothers and seeing a lot of similarities. Uh, their build, their faces, the hair. He looked so much like the other boys and he had so many of their quirks and qualities and his actions and his movements and his reactions to things. His voice is distinct and his smile, his laugh, his laugh is so similar to Brody's. Even the way that they carried the same type of volume around in public that I do, we all lack inside voices. So I was overwhelmed with answers that I had been waiting for my whole life in the sense of where is my red hair from? What is my heritage? What is my culture? Finding things out like your medical history. Finding out where my musical talent might have been passed down from. Did I inherit that? So many questions, so overwhelming, all the answers coming in at once. His mannerisms were so similar to Earl's and the other boys. Earl is, his hands are always moving when he's talking and 
his legs are shaking and Kevin was very similar. He was moving and, and couldn't sit still and his legs were moving and his hands were waving when he was talking and, and Earl had catchphrases like he would say unbelievable or a hundred percent and Kevin was talking and he used a hundred percent and I think my heart dropped down to my toes. Shortly into the conversation, I'd asked what the situation was with uh, my biological father and she let me know that he had passed away. That was one thing that really bothered him, that he wasn't going to get to meet him, and it really hit him hard. That's the one of the toughest things, um, and one of the toughest revelations of, of meeting them was knowing that he was there, and they had stayed together for years after giving me up for adoption, and, and I just didn't quite get an opportunity to meet Earl. So that was one of the, the tougher things to, to have to learn and swallow during that whole first meeting that we had. Even learning ab about the story and who Earl was and, and what had happened, it was tough knowing that I had read that story in the newspaper myself years prior to meeting Janice and Blake and Brock and Brody. He said to my boys, I owe your mom everything. I respect everything about her. She could have done something very different and I wouldn't be here today. I just knew then that he was a wonderful human being. When I had him that day, I didn't want to let him go. It felt warm, comfortable. It felt like... I was able to fit right in like I was there all along. I felt very, very, very comfortable uh, surrounded by them uh, right away. As the dinner finished up, we hugged. We stood outside and we talked for another half an hour. I didn't know when I was going to see him again or if I was because I wasn't putting any pressure on him. However he felt comfortable and whatever he wanted to do, I was okay with. I can remember getting back to the car, opening the door, taking a seat, and then not actually turning on the vehicle for what felt like an hour. I felt an instant connection to him. I knew I felt the connection right away and I was hoping he did too. I drove home with Brock and Brody, and all the way home we talked about the evening and Kevin, and and uh, just it was crazy. And Brock laughed, and Brody laughed, and and they both thought he looked like them, and they both thought he was just like them, and they couldn't get over how much he was like them. Brock just said to me on the way home, he said, "We're gonna be close." And I said, I hope so. And, and I said to Brock, I didn't want to leave. And he goes, I knew you didn't. And I said, I just, I, I said, I just didn't want to leave because I don't know when I'll see him again. When I got home that first night, I called the family upstairs to the, uh, to our, our kitchen area. And we talked about how I felt meeting them for the first time. And it was met with a lot of excitement and questions. My parents didn't know Janice and Earl when they adopted me, so all the same questions that I was asking, uh, they were asking as well. It was harder for my mom that evening than I think it was anybody else hearing the story. It was the sound of silence. You could always tell when mom was challenged with something emotionally about the situation because she would go very quiet but because I was so excited about the situation she didn't want to be that gray cloud on the situation so she just kind of hunkered her feelings down and and went quiet 
we went home and uh, we all left Blake alone that night. So I'm very close with my youngest brother, Brody. And uh, when he came home, he came downstairs and he he kind of knew I was still angry. So he avoided the conversation. He just kind of sat down beside me on the couch. And then after probably five, 10 minutes, he started opening up. So I started asking him questions. What did he look like? Is he dad's kid? I was just like kind of interested to know if it was dads and moms. And Brody looked at me and laughed and said, he looks exactly like you. He's definitely dad's kid. It was a big sigh of relief knowing that they, they felt comfortable around him, that there was a connection there. It was the next day, the next morning, I had received an invitation to go over to their place. I was probably the most terrified I've ever been in my entire life. I didn't know like, what was the proper way to act. I didn't know if I should hug him. I didn't know if he was even going to like me. I didn't know if I was going to like him. It was one of the most scariest moments of my life. Like 24, 30 hours before, I didn't know if, like, I didn't know this man existed. The uh, first night Kevin came to the house, I answered the door. He took my breath away. He was wearing a suit and a tie, and he was all dressed up. He had a long dress coat on, and he looked identical to Earl. It took me 10 minutes to get my bearings. The resemblance to Earl was overwhelming. I walked through the big door into... A hallway, Earl's monument to my left. The white Christmas tree is in the right corner. Dogs are running around. The cat's messing around in the tree. Clean, warm, pictures on the walls of the family. It was surreal to see the answers to all you know all those little questions i asked what would it have been like if i wasn't adopted i will never forget when blake and kevin met each other they were in my hallway blake was walking in the door down the hallway and kevin went to meet him the first thing that crossed my mind was wow he is short because my brothers are all six foot tall I'm just short of six foot tall and Kevin's maybe five, seven. So I laughed and I giggled and I said, wow, he is short. And then he turned around and we locked eyes and they both had their mouth open wide. It was like, I was looking in a mirror. I saw his beard and I saw his hair and I was like, yeah, this is my dad and me mixed together. I can remember saying to him, you are, uh, you are a really handsome gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, one of the first things we ever said to each other. We looked at each other and mom said, you two can be twins. And Kevin looked at me and said, yeah, you're a good looking fella. <laughs> My mom cried. I laughed. Like I, I, I was just so awkward in the situation. I didn't know how to react. I just kind of giggled like a school child. <laughs> Honestly, it was like the most awkward encounter ever the first time we talked i think i went up to him and i said nice to meet you and shook his hand and he said nice to meet you too but as the night went along he began opening up and i began coming around it was the awkwardness was mostly due to my stubbornness if i had to admit it was i didn't want to like him he didn't say much actually that that first day i feel like he was more watching me from the other side of the room just catching the vibe we didn't say anything too heavy or too large that night. We talked sports, hockey. We talked about the Detroit Red Wings, who he likes, and the Boston Bruins, who I liked. It was just shocking. I was looking at my long-lost brother. He looked like my dad. He spoke like my dad. He acted like my dad. I looked up to my dad so much, and losing him was really hard on me, and I took it really hard. And one thing I always la like laughed at my dad for was he was always the shortest, always had the worst hair, and then went bald. And I looked at Kevin and his horrible facial hair and his horrible hair and how short he was. And I was like, this is my dad 2.0. And it just gave me this warm, fuzzy feeling in my belly like he belongs. This is like 
my last parting gift from my dad to me. It was like all my anger just disappeared. I was no longer angry at my mom. I was no longer, like I could put a face to this name, Kevin, and I could put a personality to him and I could actually see that like he was there. It's real. You got to get used to it. You got to love it. And it was easy to love. Having all four of them together in a room with me and not having to hide and not having to hide part of my life away from them and being able to share everything together it was unreal and it felt like my family was together for the first time the only missing piece was Earl and uh, it just felt like the piece of my heart that was gone had been filled in I felt like then Kevin was going to be a part of our lives forever. And everybody seemed so happy. It just, it seemed to change everyone's outlook on life. It seemed like this was the beginning for us all. I wanted to reach out to his mom. I went on her Facebook page and I uh, sent her a messenger and I just wrote on it how grateful I was to her and what a wonderful job her and her husband had done raising Kevin, that he was a wonderful young man. You could tell he had a wonderful life growing up. He talked about his brothers and he talked about his mom and dad and he talked about his grandparents and how close they were. I just knew that he had a good upbringing and it was exactly what Earl and I wanted for him and hoped for him. I wanted her to know that no matter what, that I was thankful for just knowing that he had the best upbringing and I was grateful to her and I thanked her and she responded back and um, said she would respect everything Kevin wanted. I had said that I would love for her to meet my other boys because she would see the resemblance with Kevin. She said that someday she would love that too if that's what Kevin wanted, and we left it at that. My mom took more time than everybody else, so I told her, you're stuck with me, and you can't get rid of me, so that's the best thing I could think of to do to reinforce to her that she's not going to lose her kid that she raised. Kevin came over the other night and he said to me, I've got exciting news. And he said, my mom wants to get us all together in the same room. That will be the first time that all of the members from both sides will be in the same room at the same time. I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm, I'm scared to meet her because... And that's and he goes, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm nervous to meet her now. What if she doesn't like me? And he goes, it can only go up from here. I get to have you and all my brothers and my family in the same room for the first time. He said, I'm so excited about it. And I said, well, I'm excited too. So... My uh, dirty little secret, it turned out to be one of the biggest loves of my life. So he wasn't a dirty secret. He was the best thing I ever did. A decision that I'm glad that I did. And I'm lucky I did. And I'm grateful I did. He's a blessing and the part of my heart that was missing is returned.
talking about Earl has become easier and moving on and sharing stories about Earl. Every time Kevin is here, we give him another story about Earl or another piece of Earl that he didn't know. And it just helps us with keeping Earl's memory alive. It keeps us all going. We've all turned the corner and we are all healing and finding Kevin has so much to do with that. Now I have an opportunity to enjoy moments that I never thought I would have. Uh, And I'm way more grateful that uh, I have such love and support seemingly every way I turn. I feel like our stories, uh, uh, it has it has aspects of a fairy tale. I do feel like we're getting to experience a happy ending together, or, or we're going to grow to what a happy ending is. Kevin is my brother now. He's someone I can rely on. When I have troubles in the middle of the night with my car, I can phone him and he'll be right there. And I'm someone that he'll phone if he has troubles. I think we're... We continue to grow and there's a lot of catching up to do, but he's definitely my brother. The best part of all this is when I'm in a room and all four boys are together and they're laughing and carrying on and that's the best part. Not in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine that I would be this happy or this close with Kevin and that the boys would feel this way. Not ever in my wildest dreams. Finding Kevin and having my whole family together has been my saving grace. We all, uh, we all love Kevin. That doc was produced by Elisa Siegel. It was edited by Allison Cook. Thanks to Colleen O'Grady-Johnson for telling us about this story. She's the adoption consultant who helped Janice find Kevin. Colleen's work usually goes the other way, helping adoptees find their birth parents. So this story was a special one for her. Colleen was also at the heart of another documentary Elisa made last year, about how one man's search to find his birth mother was solved thanks to the auction of a valuable painting. To check out that story, head to our website and click on this week's episode. We've posted a link in the web story. There, you will also find photos of Janice, Kevin, and the three Bs, Blake, Brock, and Brody. When you see Kevin and Blake side by side, it's like, yeah, no kidding, they're brothers. That's all at cbc.ca slash docproject. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Joan Weber, Sherry OKK, Tanera McLean, Kristen Nelson, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Jennifer Warren was the senior producer of this episode. And Jen has hopped over to Q for the next few months. Eventually, according to tradition, Tom Power and I will have to arm wrestle over which show ultimately gets her. My money's, it's on me. The Doc Project's acting senior producer is our very own Sherry OKK. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. And Happy New Year. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.